For the rest of us, I realize this is church and all, but I'm going to invite you this morning uh, at the introduction of this Christian sermon to engage in a little bit of deviance. So I'm going to invite you to join me in not, not deviant behavior, just some deviant thinking by way of illustration, right? Just to get us thinking right. Think of what kind of advice you would give if you were giving advice to a false prophet. Or to use the, the terminology from the book of First John, if you were giving advice to Antichrist on how to confuse Christians. So you're part of the consulting group, okay? So if you were asked, how could we best confuse Christians? What kind of advice would you give them? Where would you, where would you send them as far as trying to derail things? The book of, as you're thinking about that, we just started a study of the small New Testament book, the book of 1 John. It's toward the end of the Bible. And in 1 John, we find addressed the matter of Christian assurance that true Christians can be confident that they are Christians and that they will remain Christians and they won't be forsaken by Christ. It's about assurance, according to chapter 5. But false teachers, antichrists, false prophets have been permeating the minds of the Christians. And the Christians are becoming confused. They don't really understand basics of the faith any longer, and so they're having their assurance stolen from them. If you can't steal a Christian salvation, at least you can steal their assurance. It's plaguing. It's devastating. It's not healthy. It's not how God wants things to be. So if you were to help out those antichrists, Where's a, where's a good place to sow confusion? What's something to really get them off track? Well, I imagine if we did open mic time and didn't have preaching in a church, imagine that, we'd have different answers because there are different answers. When Christians are confused in a lot of different realms, it leads to confusion, right? And we, we lose our grasp of really what's true and how we can have confidence and how we can have assurance. The one I would suggest, if I were a part of the consulting firm, uh, at least one of my suggestions would be, if we can confuse Christians regarding sin, we can really confuse Christians. We can talk about Christ, we can talk about God, we can talk about humanity. There are other good and right answers. But this morning we're going to be talking about confusing Christians about sin. And when you confuse Christians about sin... They're going to lack assurance. Because they're not going to really understand who they are. And they're not going to understand who Christ is. And they're not going to understand what Christ has done. And they're not going to understand how what Christ has done still affects them as Christians and their Christian assurance. Confusion about sin, by the way, is big business. Let's just look at it from two, two extremes. There's the extreme that says... There is no sin, that you don't sin, that your behavior is fine. As long as you feel good about what you're doing, it's fine and God is fine with it. It's in effect a a denial of sin. And people love affirmation. Affirmation sells. Religious affirmation sells. 
Turn on the television. Surf the web. Check out Twitter. Check out religious celebrities' bank accounts and airplanes and cars. Affirmation sells. Downplay sin, deny sin, don't talk about sin, and you can have a lot of power and a lot of money. Might be worth hiring a consultant if you're antichrist. Or the other extreme, and there's all kinds of things in the middle, the other extreme would be to tell people they are sinful, and not only are they sinful, there is no ultimate resting solution to their sin. And if I'm an antichrist, I also, through the opposite extreme, can have a whole lot of money. And a whole lot of power. Because you've got to keep coming to me. Because there's no real lasting solution. Well, regardless of which kind is being peddled, to be confused about sin is a disaster. I realize we don't like to talk about sin. But you need to understand sin because you'll never understand Jesus. If you don't understand sin, you'll never understand yourself. You'll never understand why we have suffering and pain in the world. We've got to own the reality of sin if we're ever going to be confident that God is accepting of us. So I'm going to take my cues this morning from the Apostle John. The Apostle John in 1 John, again, end of the Bible. We're going to look at chapter 2 today. And in 1 John, he is going to remind Christians, and I'm going to remind you, of three realities about Jesus that allow you as a Christian to have assurance and to keep having assurance. And what I mean by assurance is that God accepts you. Okay, so 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 this morning will be our only uh, verses, and we're looking to have this false teaching combated regarding assurance from John the Apostle who was with Jesus. Let's go ahead and look at it now. We won't get into the three yet. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, 1 John, My little children, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now why, why, why say that? We can have a whole list of reasons why. He, he, he says, I'm writing to you that you won't sin. Now, earlier he talked about how everybody sins. False teachers say there is no sin. But now he's saying, affectionately, compassionately, I, John, by the way, who knows things, because I was with Jesus, so I, I know, I, I can say this with authority, I'm writing to you, professing Christians, that you don't sin. So why would he say that? He would say that because he knows, because he was with Jesus, and it's good not to sin especially if you say you're a Christian. He, he says this because he's going to tell us later in chapter 3, verse 4, don't, he says here, don't sin because sin is lawlessness. And Christians aren't supposed to be lawless. I mean, think about it. If, if God is the one who gave law because He's God and we're not, and we know God's law says love God and love neighbor, well, that's good. It's good to love God and love neighbor. And so he says, I'm writing to you Christians... So you don't sin. Because it's good not to sin. It's not good to be lawless. I mean, that would be true of unbelievers. I mean, it would be the right statement. It would be true just in general. Don't sin. 
Sin is bad. Sin is bad for you. Sin is bad for you and your relationship with God. Sin is bad for you and your relationship with other people. I mean, that's just a, that's a truism, right? Don't sin. But in particular, Christians who, who now have been united to Christ and they understand something of the work of Christ and they have the Spirit of Christ and, and, and now no longer are they terrified of condemnation and so now we're motivated to do the right thing and, and, and Christians don't sin. By the way, you don't have to anymore. So why does he say this? He says this for lots of different reasons. It's bad for you. It's bad for others. It's insulting to God. It's offensive to God. reasonable to not sin. Think about how unreasonable it is to sin. I mean, if sin is lawlessness and we're dealing with God who's good and He says, here's what's good and here's what's good for you, um, treat me like I'm God, love me, and love other people who are made in God's image, that's good and reasonable. It's what will be best for me. It will be best for other people. It's what's honoring to God. I'm writing to you, don't, don't, don't sin. It's just it's bad. It ends badly. My next question, and we're not to the three reasons yet, by the way, or the three realities about Jesus. What if this is all he said? I'm writing to you that you don't sin. I wrote down, it would be true, it would be good, but we'd be in big trouble. If this was all he said, we'd be in big trouble. Because we do sin. He's already talked about that. We would rightfully be plagued with guilt and fear and have no real assurance. I don't want to suggest there's this fine line between truth and error. But when it comes to dealing with Christians, there is this dual reality. You've been forgiven, you've been accepted by God, restored because of Christ. You are a sinner, but don't sin. It's not good for you. You don't have to anymore. And, and John strikes a good double emphasis. And by the way, when we don't strike the good double emphasis, we end up getting ourselves into antichrist kinds of teachings. I should tell you as a Christian pastor, echoing John, don't sin, it's bad for you. Don't be lawless. Do what God says, it'll be good for you and for your family and for your friends and for your work or, and, and, and culture. But if that's all I say... I'm not striking the other reality that you need to be reminded of because otherwise you're not going to have assurance because you haven't yet seen Jesus yet, which is when you're perfected fully, and we call that in Christianity glorified. Which is one of the problems John is dealing with. There are some people that are saying basically you already are. He'll get to that in chapter 3. Don't sin. It's bad for you. It's not what's best for you. But it's not all he said. It's not all that needs to be said. How about let's keep going? And all God's people said, (laughs) Amen, right? (laughs) But if anyone does, notice how he says it too. It's not in the flippant sense. 
And for sure you're going to all the time, so just go for it. No, there's this, there's this restraint kind of called for, but, but if anyone does, sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He, He, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And now I want to go back to those verses and look in detail and select out and highlight the highlights. And there we'll find and underscore and emphasize and reemphasize three realities about Jesus. So he starts with don't sin and then he gives the three realities about Jesus that can help you if you are a Christian to still have assurance even when you do sin even when you commit violations against God's holy, perfect, good law. And whether you realize it or not, if you're a Christian, you need this. (laughs) It might be one of the more important things you've ever heard. Because I will suggest to you that you do sin, according to chapter 1. So if you're going to have confidence that God has accepted you and will keep accepting you, you need to understand. It's vital that you understand these three realities about Jesus. Pastorally, I really want you to get it. Wonderful realities. Let's let's tackle them in reverse order because they build upon one another and it might be easier for me to do it that way since the three realities are related and we've already read the verses. By the way, if you're not a Christian, these are the same things you need. But he's writing to people who are Christians. And he's saying what Christians need actually for assurance is the same thing unbelievers need, which is pretty interesting. Maybe just one more, one more way to, to, to handle this, lest you don't think you really need this if you're a Christian. Back to verse 1. But if anyone does sin, apart from Jesus, you know how that sentence should finish? But if anyone does sin, you are going to face the just condemnation of a wrathful God. I guarantee it. Smile. God loves you. <laughs> Okay, I'm being sarcastic. Because we do sin and we struggle, if we're honest. And that's not how he finishes the sentence. And we can be grateful that's not how he finishes the sentence. Writing to Christians, if you do sin. Now let's look at the three realities. Number one, first reality about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It says it right there, right? In verse 2, He, meaning Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins. That's the first great reality. Jesus is the great propitiation. You may have never even heard the word before. You may have never said the word before. It's meant to give you assurance. Some translations translate it, tra- translate Some translations translate it. Is that right? Okay. I think I have a minor in English, but it's been a long time since I went to college. (laughs) Atonement. 
He's the sacrifice of atonement. It's taken from the same, same word. Propitiation means satisfy. Okay? It's the great reality that Jesus, through His death, is the atoning sacrifice. In other words, the propitiatory sacrifice. In other words, the satisfying sacrifice. The word is used, it's used in the Bible, it's used in other texts, uh, in contrast to anger, fury, wrath. Okay? And in our text here, and if we looked at John's Gospel and other Gospel accounts, you've got God's judgment that comes because of sin, and Jesus goes to the cross, and He pays the penalty, right? He atones for our sins. He satisfies the law of God and the just or fair condemnation that comes to us because we're lawbreakers. Okay? Propitiation. It's this great reality. It's the grand reality that God is satisfied. See, if you sin and you don't have Jesus as your, your propitiatory sacrifice, then you are facing fair, just condemnation. Fury, anger, wrath, not the kind that flies off the handle, but the kind that actually is pure and deliberate and precise. Listen to just a couple of passages regarding this. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation, anger every day. But He doesn't just feel indignation every day as some kind of, again, like I would, lacking self-control, but He's a righteous judge who feels this way. He's a fair judge. He gives what's actually earned and, and deserved. It's, it's, it's a terrible, terrible reality for us. But it's not a terrible, terrible reality for Him. That's Old Testament. New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, it describes unbelievers as, by nature, children of wrath. Think of that in terms of what we deserve. Wrath, condemnation, judgment. It's bad, it's terrible. It doesn't sell, by the way. But it helps us to understand sin. Lawlessness against God. Cosmic treason, I like to say. Attempting to overthrow the perfect government of all governments. Punishable fairly by condemnation, wrath. And what happens? Jesus, on the cross, propitiates. Remember in John's Gospel account, as well as, well as, other, as, well as other Gospel accounts, Jesus talks about the cup. That I must drink the cup. I will drink the cup. And he's using that as a metaphor for drinking down just condemnation. Drinking the wrath. Drinking the judgment. To the point where on the cross he will say, it is finished. The, the just wrath of God has been propitiated. Atonement has been made. Satisfaction has been secured. Absolutely. And it's amazing. We tell unbelievers this is what they need. And John is telling believers this is what you need. Because you sin too. And apart from Jesus, 
you're in trouble. He's pointing them back to the cross. He's pointing them back to the work of Jesus. He's pointing them to the good news that Jesus propitiates. Sometimes we joke and say, you know, we talk about theology in church and and people are looking for something other than theology. I'm here to tell you, you can't have assurance apart from theology. Propitiation may be the best word you hear all day. It may be the best word you hear in your life if you're honest with yourself about your sin. He's the great propitiator. Yeah, it's great. Now, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. It's so nice to say rabbit freely. We can't say rabbit in our house because we have a Jack Russell min pin and it thinks rabbits are the Antichrist. <laughs> okay, I digress. Pray for me. Pray for my wife. I'm dying to tell you stories, but they're just proof that I'm a sinner, so I won't. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but this this is, when, when taken wrongly, opponents of Christianity somehow take it and run with this and say, isn't that God a terrible God? That He would do this to His Son. Or if I'm a false teacher, false prophet, trying to make a buck and starting to spin a new religion where I can get a following, other than teaching historic Christianity, I would say we just can't accept this kind of God. We've evolved past this kind of God. It's been labeled not too long ago by a very highly sold book, Cosmic Child Abuse. Well, if you glance over at 1 John chapter 4, verse 10... We can keep ourselves from such false teaching. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Don't make a false choice. You don't have to make a false choice. Is God angry every day with sin, righteously so? Yes! Does God love sinners? Yes! And He sends His own unique Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to pay for our rebellion. It's provided for by Him. We could go to another text, and we won't right now. We could go to to Ephesians chapter 5, and Jesus loves Him and gives Himself up for us. I mean, it's grand and wonderful, but you need to know your Bible well enough to know that when someone is, someone's promoting something, trying to get a following that's not true, you know what, for what it is. Our great assurance comes from the great triune God and purpose of God in providing a perfect propitiatory sacrifice, bringing satisfaction. How about that? Don't sin, but when you do, please remember Jesus is the great propitiator because of the sending of the Father and His voluntary act. And oh, by the way, the only reason we know this is because of the work of the Spirit. It's awesome. Awesome. By the way, this is why Christians, uh, Christian writers like Jerry Bridges, who I appreciate so much, Say things like, this is why you need to preach the gospel to yourself, Christians. 
And we were like, huh? Oh, then we, oh, that sounds good. Maybe I'll tweet that. We don't really know what it means. Sometimes, some of you do, you're smart. But at first, we have this is so puzzling. Christian gospel to believers, that doesn't make sense, or to ourselves. You know, the reason it doesn't make sense is because we don't think we're sinners. Worthy of condemnation. We're confused by false teaching. If you really realize that you struggle with sin as a Christian, you shouldn't have any assurance unless you remember that Jesus is the great propitiator of your sins. And this is what Christians are supposed to remember for Christian assurance. And now you know. You know what? I, I, I need to hear the gospel myself becomes rather important, actually. Jesus Christ, He is the propitiation. Now, we, we need to move on, but do notice, um, since we're reading it backwards, we need to go up a little ways. Jesus Christ the righteous. So, who's the one who has the ability and who's qualified to propitiate only the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous. The one who's perfectly upheld God's law. He's not flawed. Providing flawed atonement. No, perfect atonement. It's really awesome. Really, really, really awesome. Let's go to number two. A second reality about Jesus that gives us assurance because it tells us there's no condemnation for us. Number two, Jesus is the righteous. Jesus is the righteous, which is related to the first one, which is why we're going in reverse order. Do notice there in verse one where it says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm so excited to talk about this. I kind of don't want to. I don't want to mess it up. As a fellow Christian and as a pastor, you, you, you so need to know this if you're going to have assurance. Jesus Christ the righteous. When you sin, it's not good, it's not right. But who is your advocate? The one who provides perfect atonement and the one who is the righteous. That's what unbelievers need. It's what believers need. But what is it? I'll confess to you that a lot of my Christian life was fuzzy on it. I knew it was good. I knew it was right. But what exactly does it mean? Jesus Christ the righteous. And this kind of talk is all over the Bible. Let me help you. Let me help you so you can help others. To be righteous is to be one who upholds law. To be righteous 
is to be one who upholds law. That would make sense. According to chapter 3, sin is lawlessness. It's not doing what God says. It's not loving God appropriately. It's not loving neighbor appropriately. And Jesus Christ, the righteous. The dikaios, for those of you who think you'll know more and be better Christians if you know Greek. And dikaios means righteous. And you know what it means in Greek? It just means righteous, okay? You don't need to know Greek to know this. But just to be sure, I think I've probably, without overestimating, read at least 40 different Greek resources to make sure, dikaios, righteous, what does righteous mean? It means upholding law. God is righteous because He upholds His own law. And we're called to be righteous because we're supposed to treat God like He's God. Jesus Himself says that means love God and love neighbor. Righteous. Jesus Christ is the righteous. So Jesus Christ is the upholder of God's law. Jesus Christ, as I say almost every single week, but we're seeing it right here in our text, if Jesus Christ is the righteous for your assurance... As your substitute, Jesus Christ is the upholder of the divine law in your place. Jesus is the one who loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself representatively in your place, in place of everyone who would ever believe. And guess what that's designed to do? Give you assurance. Remember when Jesus was baptized? John didn't want to do it. John was called to preach repentance to the Israelites. God sent John the Baptist to get everyone ready because Messiah is coming. And what do all the Israelites need to do? All the Israelites need to repent and get ready for Messiah to come. And they experienced, they, they obeyed, obeyed God through John the Baptist by being baptized. A Jewish kind of baptism. John says, I'm not going to baptize you, Jesus. And Jesus says, you are going to baptize me, John, to fulfill all righteousness. Representatively, he was doing what all people were called to do. This is why 1 Peter says that Jesus is the just for the unjust. Same word, by the way. Same word, family. The righteous for the unrighteous. The upholder of law for violators against God's law. It's absolutely staggering to the mind, amazing and assuring. I have so many notes here. This is amazing. We're going to be here not that much longer. Matthew 3.15 is the baptism text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 is the 1 Peter text I just referenced. I'll just cut to the chase. God is angry with sin, lawlessness. So, to divide it, and it's impossible to totally divide, but for our sake, to divide it, that's why you need atonement or propitiation. Let's put it in the negative. You need to have that taken away. Your sin taken away. Atonement brings forgiveness. That's how I can say that. You need to be forgiven in the negative. But in the positive, 
since God isn't just looking for you to be a zero, God actually said, love me and love neighbor. The positive is the righteousness provided by Jesus. Atonement, forgiveness, now I have innocence, but God doesn't require innocence. He requires that you love Him and love neighbor appropriately. Now you have the positive upholding of divine law, righteousness. And in my little heart, I'm singing the hallelujah chorus. This is what unbelievers need. This is, this is how the Apostle Paul can say, this is how we're justified by faith. We're declared righteous by faith because we're having faith in Jesus. This is what unbelievers need. This is Romans 3, this is Romans chapter 4, this is Romans 5, etc., etc., etc. But you have to know, now he's applying this to believers. When you sin, as you're struggling, it's not good, don't do it. But you know what? There's provision made so you can still be sure, so you don't have to listen to the false teachers who say now you have to earn it somehow yourself or something like that. No, he removes the guilt negatively, Jesus does, and he positively provides the obedience. It's awesome. It's great. No assurance without it. Deficient assurance without it. What God holds against you has been removed. And what God demands from you has been provided. I know some people who, who even people who write books, who, who, who say, don't, don't tell people this. Why? Because then they might be assured. And they might be assured even if they sin. Hello? But remember, he's striking both chords. He's not saying, hey, just live it up and go for it. After all, you've got Jesus. He's not doing that. We learned it good and well in chapter 1 and now in chapter 2. But you know what? Since salvation is of the Lord and all of the Lord, you can be assured of your salvation, Mr. or Mrs. Christian. It's awesome. Lately, in, um, and this, this issue never goes away, but, but lately it's been um, a, a point of conflict in, in Bible-believing circles, and some have been saying, you're, you're, you, you get in by faith, but you stay in by your obedience. Um, initial justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Your initial being declared righteous. But your final being declared righteous, your final justification, is based upon what you do. Au contraire, mon frère. Not according to First John. Not according to 1 John. Our assurance is in Christ. I want you to know that. Let's go on to number three, third reality about Jesus, which is really the first one. Number three, Jesus is the advocate. 
Okay, here we go. Let's look at the verse again. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, what kind of advocate is he? He's the righteous advocate. Oh, not only that, he is the propitiation for our sins. What kind of advocate is he? Is he? He's the one who, who assures forgiveness because of atonement, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, which we will also get to. An advocate. We have an advocate. What's an advocate? Just some good data. An advocate is someone on the inside. An advocate is someone who knows things. An advocate is someone who can speak for you to help you. One commentator put it this way. Friend, uh, an advocate is a friend or patron who speaks up in favor of the accused. Sometimes it's used in a legal context. Sometimes it's used in a non-legal context. We know it's in a legal context because, because he's talking about sin. And sin is lawlessness. We have an insider. We have an insider who knows things. We have an insider who knows things, and we have an insider who's for us, and we have an insider who's done things, like propitiate. And not only that, who's been perfectly righteous to fulfill all righteousness. That's the kind of advocate that we have. One great synonym from the English language for advocate. It's my favorite one here. We have a champion. Right? Someone to champion our cause. To push it forward. To argue for us. We have a spiritual champion in Jesus because he's the righteous and the propitiator. It's awesome. Awesome. This is what unbelievers need. If you're an unbeliever, this is what you need. But this is what believers need. We have a champion to champion our cause. It makes all the difference in the world. The best illustration of advocate is it, it pales in comparison, but I'll never ever forget getting ready to go to the Middle East again here soon. I'll never forget going from Israel to Jordan during the time when they said, please don't leave the... Once we were there, don't leave the hotel because of the threats against Americans. Oh, okay, fine. You know, door under chair. You know, as if that's going to do a lot of good. But anyway, crossing... We, we, we crossed over the border into Jordan. We're not going there this way, but this time, by the way. Anyway, so we go into Jordan, speaking a different language. A lot of it's in your head but you're afraid and we're there to meet our guide and our guide is not there. And seemingly knows, no, nor is anyone else who speaks English. And I'm just pretending to be cool because I'm one of the leaders. Not doing a very good job. I don't think any of you were there and I'm glad except my wife. Oh, and my niece. I was scared. Maybe I didn't need to be. Just an insecure kid from Omaha. Well, now what do we do? Call this phone number, call that phone number, nothing, no one. People with weapons. (laughs) Didn't like it one bit. Well, as it turned out, we went through customs or whatever it was so quickly that we were like two hours early. No guide. No guide. 
when that guy showed up, I wanted to kiss her. She wasn't my type, and I was with my wife, so it would have been okay. <laughs> but we had an advocate. We had an advocate because of, of what she knew. She was Jordanian. Oh, and a Christian, by the way. She was Jordanian, and what she could say, she spoke the language, and it was like, we, it was like awesome. I love that woman from first sight, because she was for us, to plead our case, so to speak. We had someone on the inside who could champion our cause. Pales in comparison. Pales in comparison. But in Jesus, we have an advocate. And what Jesus is doing in heaven before the Father on your behalf is not saying, it's okay, just look at Pat. No, He's not doing that. He Himself is the propitiation. He Himself is the righteous. He's pointing to Himself and saying, Pat belongs to me. Remember in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Satan can say, Pat Abendroth is not righteous. Pat Abendroth sins. And we can know that Jesus doesn't say, oh no, he doesn't. Jesus doesn't point to Pat Abendroth. Jesus points to himself and he is the advocate, the righteous. The propitiation. Changes everything. Changes absolutely everything. Final question. Where else can we find such assurance? Where else can you find an advocate who could do this for you? There are other advocates. They would be happy to take your money. And so would their handlers. Well, you all know. There's no other place you can find an advocate like this. There's no other advocate like this in the whole world. Because no one else has propitiated. No one else has drank the cup. No one else has fulfilled all righteousness. There is no other in existence advocate where you could go for assurance. And I think that's what he means by what he says at the end. He's the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. There aren't other saviors. There's nowhere else you can go. And notice he's saying propitiation, not potential propitiation. It's real. So whoever this is for, they really have God's wrath averted. Now we're into a whole other rabbit hole, which I'm not going to go down right now. I think the point is, as other commentators would put it, his point is, there's only one. That would fit Acts chapter 4. There's only one. That would fit Jesus in John chapter 14. And so false teachers say, well, that, you, you, that's, that's nice you have your Savior. And we have ours. And it's okay, because there are many paths that lead to God, as long as you're sincere. There's only one, because how about this? He's not being mean-spirited. There's only one who met the qualifications. Because there's only one who's righteous. And there's only one who provides perfect, full propitiation. Atonement. Lots of you know this. 
Some of you might not know it. You know other people who don't know it. Hopefully you're, you're equipped to be more assured today. Hopefully you're also equipped to be a better communicator of Christian realities today. Because God knows, and I'm not being flippant, we need it. I read an article this past week that was uh, described this way. This is the title of the article. Survey finds most American Christians are actually heretics. That wasn't in Christianity Today. It was in, I think, the Federalist. Survey finds that most American Christians are actually heretics. Say what? I like it. It's provocative. And one of the reasons cited is that when evangelicals, people who say they believe the Bible, not just anybody, people who say they believe the Bible, almost 50% of them, almost 50% of them said that they believe God accepts the worship of all religions. If he did, if he does, why in the world did he execute his son? And he's not, then therefore Jesus is not the righteous. He's one among many. He's the propitiation. And not for ours only. But for the sins of the whole world. He's the one and only Savior. We know that not because we're smart. But we know that and now we want to live to honor Him and we want to tell other people about it. That's why the Bible says and we echo, believe in the Lord Jesus, trust in Him and you will be saved, you will be delivered, you will be rescued. You will experience propitiation for your sins. Righteousness credited to your account and you will have an advocate who is worthy of your honor and your devotion. Great stuff. Just great stuff. Guess what we're going to talk about next Sunday? Same stuff. Just different verses. Father, thank you for the men and women and boys and girls of Omaha Bible Church. We are, as one author put it, we are beggars. But we certainly love telling other beggars where to go to find food. We didn't love you first. You loved us first and sent your son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. And so may we be, may we be the kind of men and women and boys and girls who are quick to boast in Jesus. Not look down on other people because we should look down on ourselves. We're weak and we're feeble. But that we might be compassionate and merciful and kind and gracious enough to tell other people that we know that they need to trust in Jesus, the Savior of the world, in whose name we pray, amen.